with my only. You got that? Why, oh, we are whip to flare, aren't we? One, two, three, Is four, it your, five, is that why you six, played that seven, song? Seven, eight, Shimizo, Shimazo, Haas and Pepper Incorporated. We're gonna do it. He walked onto set this morning playing a song. I loved I'm get you a Bluetooth Laverne speaker. and Shirley. It was Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and then later it was Joni Loves Chachi or something like that. Man. Happy's like, it's a no for me. You guys are like, what are you talking about? Laverne DeFazio and Shirley Feeney. Saturday, good morning, everybody. We're talking about Someone we love, Hollywood has lost yes. another star. We're talking about actress Cindy Williams, who played Shirley on Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley. Uh, she has died. More on her life in a moment. But first, two more Memphis police officers taken off the streets, including the one who said that he wanted to stomp Tyree Nichols. Uh, three EMTs fired. Coming up, what they did on the night of that deadly beating. And a dangerous ice storm spreading misery across multiple states right now. 40 million Americans enter winter weather alerts. Travel nightmares already beginning this morning. You've got treacherous icy roads and nearly 1,000 flights canceled. We'll give you the latest forecast. Also this morning, right now, America's top diplomat is walking a diplomatic tightrope. He is meeting with Palestinian leaders as violence and tensions are escalating with Israel. Can Secretary of State Antony Blinken bring down the temperature in an unexpected Part of his visit. All of that in the hours to come, but we're going to begin with this brutal winter storm unleashing ice and bitter cold all across Texas and the South. Here's a live look. There's Arkansas there where the governor has declared a state of emergency. This is the interstate near Fayetteville. Dallas now waking up to another round of ice and freezing rain. It has been a treacherous mess around the city with overturned trucks and car wrecks. Hundreds of flights already canceled. Around 38 million Americans across a stretch of 1,500 miles from Texas to West Virginia under winter weather alerts right now. Ed Lavendera is live for us in Dallas with more. Good morning, Ed. How's it looking? Well, good morning, Don. Here in Dallas, the worst has not started coming down yet, but that is what this uh, area of North Texas is bracing for as that uh, sleet and precipitation expected to start falling more intensely in the coming hours. That means roadways like this are going to become a treacherous nightmare, as you mentioned. Already we're seeing the effects of this winter storm. Uh, nearly a 1,000 flights canceled. We presume that that will continue to worsen uh, throughout the day. And these winter advisories and winter warnings stretching from as far south as San Antonio all the way up into Oklahoma and Arkansas as well. School districts already canceling classes. They were canceling them yesterday before any rain had really started falling here in this area. So uh, transportation officials, emergency officials urging people across the region that if you have no business on the roadways today to please stay off the roadways because you might see the traffic moving rather quickly right now, but in the coming of hour, in the coming hours, Don, this is going to change dramatically. Yeah, careful there. Texas doesn't have a, the best reputation when it comes to the power grid and infrastructure. Ed Lavendero following <laughs> the story for us. We'll check back. Thank you, Ed. All right, we're going to take you now from Texas to the CNN Weather Center in Atlanta. Chad Myers is there. Chad, which areas are we expecting to be the hardest hit today? You know, it's one round after another, Caitlin. It's hard to say that because this is all going to come on starting in Texas and then moving on up toward the Ohio Valley. This is where we are right now. This is only the first wave of three. So, yes, we are seeing some ice now almost to Nashville, and that could really slow things down this morning. But Greenwood, Arkansas, a third of an inch of ice on all of the trees and all of the branches. And we go from Louisville all the way down to Memphis and even into Dallas. The orange areas on Google Maps showing you 
the slowdowns. And this is what I-35 north of Dallas looks like on the way up to Denton. Ruts in the road. You never like to drive in those ruts because you don't want to get out of those ruts because as soon as you do, you're on the ice. Here are your winter weather advisories and also your warnings. There will be significant snow and ice coming in. This is just the first round. Temperatures are in the 20s and it will begin to rain as the afternoon goes on. 20 degrees, 25 degrees and rain is no fun. And that's what we're getting here for the next couple of days. One to two rounds more of this, Caitlin. Yeah, not only is it not fun, it's dangerous. So those drivers in Denton better be careful. Chad Myers, thank you for that. We'll stay with you for updates. Okay. Well, this morning, two more Memphis police officers are on leave and subject to an internal investigation after the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. A total of seven officers have now been relieved of their duties. So far, only five, though, face those second-degree murder charges. The city's fire department also uh, fired two EMTs and a lieutenant following their investigation. Ryan Young is live in Memphis for us this morning with more. What's interesting to me, too, Ryan, is that we only know the identity and the race of one of those additional two police officers. And I wonder why that is. Yeah, Poppy, still so many questions here. You know, last week, the city basically told us they're going to be working through this investigation, going through that video like so many of us uh, have done, watching each particular point. You can see the city made moves yesterday to get rid of some of those officers they feel like didn't help when they saw danger happening right in front of their face. New fallout from a video that has shaken the country. Three members of the Memphis Fire Department and two more police officers have been relieved from duty following the deadly police beating of Tyree Nichols. Memphis police said Monday that those two officers are still subjects of an internal investigation. This makes seven officers total fired in connection with this case. The five initial officers, all of whom are black, were ultimately fired on January 20th after being placed on leave and then indicted last week on second-degree murder and other charges. In a release, the Memphis Fire Department said the two EMTs and a fire lieutenant failed to conduct an adequate patient assessment of Nichols after he was pepper sprayed. One of the latest police officers to be fired is wearing this body camera. He's identified by Memphis police as Officer Preston Hemp Hill. Hemp Hill, who is white, can be seen firing his taser at Nichols following the initial traffic stop January 7th. After Nichols takes off running with other officers chasing him, Hemp Hill is heard on his body cam. Oh, they stomp his ass. A source confirms to CNN, Hemp Hill is also a member of the now disbanded Scorpion Unit. He is seen here receiving a certificate for skilled training from the Memphis Crisis Intervention Team. Hemp Hill has not been charged. His lawyer says his client never went to the second scene where the beating occurred and that is cooperating with the investigation. Attorneys for the Nichols family released a statement saying in part, the news Monday from Memphis officials that Officer Preston Hemp Hill was reportedly relieved of duty weeks ago but not yet terminated or charged is extremely disappointing. Why is his identity and the role he played in Tyree's death just now coming to light? Memphis police have not released the name of the seventh officer. Meanwhile, according to a spokeswoman for the Shelby County DA's office, all officers and first responders who were at the scene of the Nichols arrest are being looked at for possible charges. 
we were extraordinarily quick. Within less than three weeks, we went from the incident to uh, filing charges against the five officers who were primarily responsible for the death of Tyree Nicholson, who were on that scene. Um, now, as to everybody else, it's going to take some time as we do that investigation. But I assure you, the investigation is ongoing. Yeah, Poppy, we know this investigation is moving quickly. We've seen it for ourselves. We also know this afternoon there plans to be another family news conference where Ben Crump and some others will be talking about other cases involving the Scorpion team. This entire city still remains uh, watching this, very focused on how this investigation moves forward. And as you know, people are digging in to the background of this entire Scorpion unit that's been disbanded to see what else they can unearth about what's happened to other people who live in Memphis. Yeah. Poppy? So many questions remain on that front. Ryan, thank you very much for the reporting. Next hour, Don will be joined to speak one-on-one -on -one with Tyree Nichols' brother, Jamal. He'll be here next hour. Also this morning, there's a new development in one of the many ongoing investigations into former President Trump that he's facing. This morning, we are learning that the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, has started presenting its case to a grand jury about Trump's role in hush money payments to the former adult film actress Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential race. That's according to The New York Times. Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, as you remember, pleaded guilty to campaign finance charges related to those payments that Cohen had facilitated while he was working for then-candidate Trump. This does signal, though, that the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, is nearing a decision potentially about whether or not to charge Trump. We should note here a word of caution. A conviction is not a sure thing because a case would mainly hinge on showing that Trump and his company falsified records to hide that payout from voters, which could be, you know, a low level felony charge. Still, the developments do add to Trump's mounting legal woes that we have been talking about. This is what Bragg told us when he was on CNN morning, CNN this morning, just last month. Is that correct that you are looking to jumpstart that criminal inquiry? Well, so first, I'm going to take issue with the word jumpstart. Uh, as I said, it's you know, the we, Times we, word, we, not ours. I know. I understand. Uh, you know, we have been continuously working with with rigor um, throughout the year. Uh, and you're going to be maybe displeased with the answer because I'm not going to we have not confirmed or denied. As you said, that's the Times reporting. Um, look, we're working on a number of uh, pieces and perspectives with this. Like I said, this is one chapter, an important chapter. Uh, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, tentacles, if you will, will. We're following the facts where they go. You said in the, and to the New York Times and also in other interviews, I've heard you saying that this was this was just a chapter and people shouldn't read ahead in the book. I'm wondering what that means. Is that because that sort of looks like people are saying like you're saying to people, stay tuned. There's something on the horizon. So, you know, what I'm saying is let's pause for the moment as we are. This was I think it's very consequential. Uh, the work that went into this, how ably the people of the state of New York were represented. Um, but as I said back in April, there's, there's other work going on um, and we're continuing that. Um, it wasn't pause. We've been doing it. So that was interesting because that December, as you that uh, interview was December 7th. You asked him directly about Stormy Daniels and then he kept saying this is a chapter in the investigation into Trump. Don't look forward in the in the playbook or in, in, in the workbook. And so now it feels like this is sort of the next thing to come when it comes to the Trump investigation. Maybe he was hinting in some way that this was the next thing. Yeah, uh, good question, since this is like now what has materialized. It's so interesting because this was like once a dead end, basically. They thought yeah. this was not going to happen. That's right. And it's so interesting when he's talking about, you know, reading ahead in the book, because actually his office has reached out to a publisher for one of the senior prosecutors who was in the office that was unhappy that Alvin Bragg said the broader case against Trump, which was less focused on just the hush money payments, more focused on the broader 
business practices. They weren't sure how strong that case would be, and so they actually dropped it. The prosecutors were unhappy. One of them's writing a book, and his uh, office is actually kind of concerned that it could affect this investigation now. Well, the interesting part of it is the, the key player in all of this is the person who testified in front of Congress, and Michael that is Cohen. Michael Cohen, whose part this case is partly based on his testimony about to the Congress payments, about the hush money payment. That could be where a did, problem. For where them. did that come? Listen, if I was building a criminal case or a civil case with Michael Cohen as a key witness, I might have some issues. Does he have credibility issues? Yes. yes. But everything that he has said has come to fruition. Well, they'll see the but first witness. But we're yeah. not building a criminal case here. We're building a journalistic uh-huh. case. And I think Michael Cohen should be heard because, again, this is he, he helped to build this case against Donald Trump. You, I was the reporting from The Times that yesterday the first witness before this grand jury was David Pecker, a name pretty well-known former publisher of the National Enquirer, questions about payments, et cetera. But you were covering the Trump White House during all of this. Any thoughts well, as you reflect now to see where we are I mean, here? when you look back at some of those moments, it's just wow. But remember, this was when they were on air talking about these payments happening and saying, oh, yeah, actually, the payments did happen. And it was on air that it was admitted after Trump had denied it and said, you'll have to ask my attorney, Michael Cohen. Okay. Crazy. Stay well, tuned, like you said, <laughs> to brag. The next yeah. chapter. More to come on that. Meantime, happening now, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is meeting behind closed doors with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank. The two men are hoping to defuse a rapidly escalating crisis between Israelis and Palestinians after some of the bloodiest incidents in recent years. Blinken spoke with Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, in Jerusalem yesterday. We're going to get a live report next hour. Now, this. A clear answer there from President Biden, flatly saying no to sending American fighter jets, those F-16s, to Ukraine. This comes after renewed pleas from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky for jets. He says they need them to fight the Russian aggression. Biden has consistently said planes are not on the table for the United States to stand, but there are understandably some questions about whether or not that will stand. The U.S. has provided more and increasingly sophisticated weaponry to Ukraine, despite at first pushing back on many of the requests that you saw from President Zelensky. Last week, for example, Biden announced that he would send 31 of the M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, despite top U.S. officials previously saying the heavy-duty vehicles were a poor fit for the country's military, not necessary. A key White House official, John Kirby, told me that it's going to be a while before those tanks actually make it to Ukraine. The Leopard tanks will probably get there from the Germans and from their, uh, our European allies and partners will get there uh, in relatively short order, uh, pr- probably in time to help them uh, in the spring and, and summer. The American tanks, the Abrams, will take a little bit more time. It'll take many months before they can get on the ground. Last month, the United States announced it was sending Ukraine the Patriot missile defense system. That was after months of rejecting requests to send the advanced air defense system, in part because of the steep logistical and training challenges with deploying it. That's the same logic that we heard for not sending the tanks before the U.S. quickly did that reversal. Other sophisticated weaponry that the U.S. has ultimately sent to the Ukrainians after they requested it includes the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles that have been so key, howitzers, switchblade drones, the HIMAR rocket launchers with precision rounds. As the war in Ukraine is approaching its one-year mark, hard to believe that, President Zelensky, Zelensky says there is no time for continued reflections. He's calling for a timely implementation of strong decisions by his country's allies. Very sad news to share this morning. As we mentioned at the top of the show, actress Cindy Williams, best known for the beloved sitcom Laverne and Shirley. She has died at the age of 75. 
It was her quirky Shirley Feeney character on Happy Days that the spin and the spin-off that made her a household name in America. You said it. This is eternal, eternity, over and over and over again, on and on, without ceasing, without stopping, over and over, eternal, ad infinitum, infinity. This means till death do you part the end. Do you mean forever? <laughs> Her credits span 60 years, including movies like American Graffiti, seen here with a very young Ron Howard, and The Conversation with Gene Hackman. Williams died after a short illness. That's according to her family, and she is survived by her two adult children. Aww. And she was part of, the. I think that's the golden age of television. Yeah, I do too. The 70s and 80s. Into, and I watched it even, you know, into the yeah. 90s. And it was a family dynasty. Gary Marshall was her brother who was a creator of Laverne and Shirley and the creator of um, Happy Days. And then that was a spinoff yeah. of Happy Days and then there were others to come. But that was amazing television when there were only three channels and everybody gathered around to watch Laverne and Shirley. As you were saying, so young. 75. 75 years old. 75. Okay. This, this is... This actually happened, this next story we're going to tease ahead to. Two monkeys are missing from the Dallas Zoo. Oh What's so newsworthy, police say it appears that they were taken. Plus, Alex Murdoch's defense team is floating a theory about the murders of his wife and son. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So this morning, two Emperor Tamron monkeys are missing from the Dallas Zoo, and zookeepers believe someone stole them. That's because they found the enclosure intentionally cut open. They told police those monkeys generally stay close to home, but after a search of the ground, zookeepers could not locate them. It's the fourth time this month that the zoo's animals and enclosures may have been tampered with. Earlier this month, a clouded leopard escaped after the fence was intentionally cut. She was found unharmed hours later. The zoo also found an intentional cut in the Langer monkey habitat. And last week, an endangered vulture was found dead under suspicious circumstances. The zoo has added more cameras, security patrols, and overnight staff, also offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of anyone responsible for those incidents. Wow. Four times, Four times. a month. It's a, yeah, wow. someone, I, I don't know. It sounds like an inside job, but who knows? We we'll need a lot to look we at a lot of security yeah. footage. All right, so let's turn to the double murder trial of former lawyer Alex Murdoch. Uh, he is accused, as you know, of killing his wife and his son. Well, during cross-examination yesterday in court of a special agent, Murdoch's defense attorney floated the theory that two shooters could have committed the murders. Our Randy Kay is live in Walterboro, South Carolina. I was surprised seeing this line of questioning, but I think the answer that Harputlian finally got to was interesting. Tell us more. Yeah, it sure was, Poppy. This agent basically said, you know what, just because two weapons were used doesn't mean that there had to be two shooters, that one person could have handled both of those weapons. And of course, the prosecution is saying that person is Alec Murdoch. We also got a look inside his gun room at the home, and we got a look at a second interview that he gave investigators just days after the murder. They seem to be trying to test his consistency in the details. Here's a look. I'm sorry. You're good. <laughs> I mean, she was a wonderful girl and a wonderful wife. And she was a great mother. 
An emotional Alec Murdoch in his second interview with investigators following the murders of his wife and son. First, he cries about his wife, Maggie Murdoch. Then at one point, he says this about his youngest son, Paul. <laughs> it was just so bad. I did it so bad. The interview with SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, took place on June 10th, 2021, three days after the murders. Investigators asked Alec to walk them through what he did that day. Alec said he left work early and he and Paul went target shooting on their hunting property. Did you give me what gun? Yeah. A 22 okay. Magnum. That 22 Magnum, he says they used, is not one of the weapons used in the murders. Maggie was shot with a rifle and Paul was killed with a shotgun. Alec also told investigators he wasn't at the kennels earlier in the night. I know that Maggie went to the kennels. Um, I don't know exactly where Paul went, but he left the house too. What did you do once, once Maggie and Paul left? I stayed in the house. Keep in mind, Alec Murdoch is heard on a recording on his son Paul's phone at 8.45 p.m., and that was recorded at the kennels. He told investigators twice now in separate interviews he didn't go to the kennels until he found their bodies. Earlier, his defense attorney floated the idea that two guns could mean two shooters. Is it a possibility that there are two shooters based on the data you collected? I just indicated it but prosecutors were quick to point out one person could have used two guns. Another witness for the state, Special Agent Jeffrey Croft, testified about this video. For the first time, it shows investigators the day after the murders searching parts of the Murdoch home, including this gun room. Outside, they found spent shell casings. There's two right there. Yep. They've been here a little while. three hundred. Later, Special Agent Croft walked the jury through a series of missed calls and text messages to Paul Murdoch's phone the night of the murders. Can you tell the jury the times, starting at the bottom, that he's trying to call Paul Murdoch without an answer? At 9.29 p.m., there's a one-second outgoing call. At 9.42 p.m., there's a one-second outgoing call. And at 9.57 p.m. there's a four-second outgoing call. When the caller, a friend, couldn't reach Paul, the special agent said he texted Maggie Murdoch. What does he say? Tell Paul to call me. Neither Paul or Maggie ever responded. So this morning, Poppy, the question, of course, is were Paul and Maggie already dead when that friend was trying to reach them by phone? Uh, we know from the prosecution that Paul's phone stopped uh, any type of activity at 8.49 p.m. Maggie's phone stopped all activity at 8.54 p.m. that night. So it does seem that they were dead when all that phone activity did stop, Poppy. Randy Kay, thank you very much for the reporting. We'll see this trial resume in just a few hours. Well, ahead, why Priscilla Presley is questioning the validity of her late daughter, Lisa Marie's will. Also, there's new data this morning revealing just how much learning kids globally lost out on all because of the pandemic. We'll give you the numbers. Priscilla Presley is now disputing the validity of her daughter's will. She was removed as a co-trustee back in 2016 and replaced by Lisa Marie's children but Priscilla's lawyers now say there are several issues with the document. They say Priscilla's name was misspelled. Lisa Marie's signature doesn't look right. 
As you know, Lisa Marie is Elvis Presley's only child. She was laid to rest at his Graceland estate earlier this month. Joining us now to talk about this is CNN's chief business correspondent and early start anchor, Christine Romans. Okay, so a living trust is basically this form uh, of a yeah. way to control your assets while you're still alive. Right. What is it? I mean, what is the dispute here over? So the issue here is that Priscilla Presley didn't know in 2016 that um, this the, the trustees had been changed upon mm-hmm. the death of Lisa Marie. It wasn't notarized. That's one of the things she's concerned about. She wasn't alerted, and that is required ironclad part of this trust is that she must be notified of any changes to this document, and she wasn't. So that's why her lawyers have petitioned the court uh, to see about if this 2016 amendment to her will is actually legal and valid. Wow. I mean, it, it, how long could this take, do you think? So I was looking at the Michael Jackson estate. That took 12 years to settle. Michael Jackson was heavily in debt when he died. And it was interesting to me, by the time they settled that whole estate, um, it was profitable again. It was like four times as profitable as, as it had been. So you've got an estate here that includes a 15% stake in Elvis Presley Enterprises, Graceland, the mansion, which Priscilla at one time has said, it, or uh, uh, Lisa Maria said, is absolutely 100% mine. It will always be mine. Graceland, it will always be. And when it is no longer mine, it will be my children's. And that is that. Uh, and now we are at the place where her children are named in this will as her trustees now and her own mother is disputing it. So it's granddaughters and a grandmother together over the future of what is a very complicated, complicated fortune. It's interesting that you mentioned Michael Jackson because, you know, they had that connection. But often, I mean, when you look at most of the folks who die, a lot of them die in debt. And then because they're not spending it, quite often within months or years, they end up you know, the estates just go up in value. Elvis Presley made much more money in, in death, frankly, than he did in, in life. life. You know, yeah. that has been a brand that has been just, you know, just sterling. Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, on yeah. and on and on. Yeah. Four-day work week. Let's switch gears here. So Maryland lawmakers yeah. are proposing this bill for a four-day work week. But you can't force a private company to do that, no, right? It give, would be all the federal agencies no, or state agencies? It's about tax incentives. It's giving tax incentives to companies to try it. Um, and this is inspired by this four-day work week global pilot that we have reported on here on this program that found productivity went up, burnout went down, people didn't have to commute as much, they saved money. I mean, it had very good results of this global pilot. So you have uh-huh. some lawmakers in Maryland who say, maybe we should put taxpayer money behind this and see if some companies I would like to try it. it would incent, well, more hiring, right? Because, like, you need to have the same number of doctors. They need three anchors when we take Fridays <laughs> off. Yeah, I mean, four-day work week bosses, are you listening? Right? Look, so you'd have to hire replacements for but it's, it's a response to the great resignation i mean people seem people seem to really like it they do all of their personal business on whatever day they have off of the week you don't have the pressure and the stress you get to go to your kids wait kaylin doesn't want it is that I what said you said i'd be bored sorry guys i'd be bored too <laughs> on a beach <laughs> <laughs> i'd hear less complaints from my kids saying why do you go to work every morning but sales rose at the companies that tried this and sales so and profits rose yeah. so it turned out it was profitable for the companies that did it. It wasn't just Love nice. That. It was profitable. Thanks, Romans. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Good to see you. There is a new study that shows that too much screen time now for your kids, I hope my kids are listening, can impact you or your kids later academically. Dr. Taryn Arula is here to explain. A historic matchup. Two black quarterbacks will play against each other for the first time on football's biggest stage. 
ahead of the Chiefs versus Eagles, Mahomes versus Hurts showdown. Bears quarterback Justin Fields spoke to our very own Coy Wire about how significant this moment is for the future of the NFL. Watch. I'm excited for it. I know those guys are going to be, you know, hyped up and, you know, ready to play. But, you know, it's definitely a big moment for, you know, a lot of black, you know, young QBs coming up and just, you know, being, having them uh, inspire them. And, you know, maybe, you know, they're saying to themselves that, you know, that, that can be me one day. So just, you know, being able to see that, you know, if you're a young kid out there, a young black quarterback, being able to see that and kind of say, wow, like, you know, it's, it's, it's actually happening. You know, that could be me one day. So it's, it's definitely um, awesome to see for sure. So if Mahomes wins against the Eagles, he will be the first black quarterback with multiple Super Bowl wins. And if the Eagles beat the Chiefs, well, Hertz would become the fourth black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, joining Mahomes, Doug Williams, and Russell Wilson. How much tablet time is too much? A new study finds your child's academic success may start with their screen time or lack of screen time when they are infants. Our medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narula, joins us now. Infants. Infants. Yeah, it's amazing that so many parents are giving tablets to kids who are less than 12 months old. Yeah, I mean, it's it's become so much a part of our culture. We have kids, you know that kids want to use screens. And so how do we navigate this? And I think this study really gives us an idea of just how potentially damaging this can be. And so in this study, they basically looked at around a little over 400 children and they assessed their screen time as early as 12 months. And on average, it was about two hours, which is a lot. Um, and then they followed them for about nine years. And they found that once the kids reached about nine years, they actually showed signs of decreased exam- executive functioning and attention. What is executive functioning? It's really how we focus, how we pay attention, multitask, make decisions, plan. It's so critical to our professional academic success, our ability to mentally and emotionally regulate ourselves and function. So these are really critical skills. And the other interesting part of the study is that around 18 months, some of these children had an EEG, which is a way of assessing brain function, and they already saw early changes on the EEG. Now, you can't definitively prove that it's the screen time that was associated with this and not something else in the home environment. In Correlation that, is not necessarily causation. Exactly. So maybe parents who gave their kids screens, there was something else going on at home too. But the bottom line is when a kid is looking at a screen at that young of an age, they're not, their brain isn't developing in the normal way. They're not able to learn with that face-to-face interaction mm-hmm. back and forth that they get with a parent. The hands-on, the socialization, that 2D just doesn't cut it. Um, and so this really fits with the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations that under 18 months, children should not be using screens unless they're using it to video chat with a family member. And then from ages two to five, it should be limited to less than one hour. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to do. I have kids. It's hard to tell them to put the screens down, but really, really important. We don't have kids, so <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to deal with you that You might for now. someday. <laughs> Every Sunday when I get my screen time, though, from iPhone that sends you the Apple that sends you your screen time, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm screen so much. <laughs> Um, but all of this also ties into the other topic that we're talking about this morning, which is learning loss for children. Yeah. You know, my mom's a fourth grade teacher, and this is because of COVID, and she saw this a lot. A lot of families where people said, oh, well, your kid's at home. They can do their schoolwork on their computer or whatever. And it was a real struggle for a lot of kids. Yeah, and it's just not the same. And that's what this other study that we're talking about showed. It was an international study that looked at about 15 countries, 42 studies. They put together all the data, and they, in fact, found that kids had about a 35% learning loss 
compared to a normal year. This deficit started early. It has persisted, so we haven't made up for it. It affected disproportionately children from disadvantaged backgrounds. And also, it seemed like the losses were greater in math versus English or reading or, or other language skills. Um, but, you know, how do we catch up at this point, I think, is really the question. And so some of the researchers suggest after-school programs, summer programs, lengthening the school day, uh, potentially online or learning apps as well. But really All things tough. I support. Yes. <laughs> I just do longer school day, longer into the summer, but yeah. controversial, I know. Yes. Thank you, Doc. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. All right, you can read more about the story on CNN.com, all these questions about, you know, just the effects that it did have. And ahead, we're going to talk about how scientists also are now using artificial intelligence to make a grim prediction on global warming and our efforts to fight, fight climate change. And a new HBO drama, The Last of Us, is renewing the debate, which is better, binge or weekly watching. We will discuss. I'm taking you with me. We can just keep our histories to ourselves. You don't tell anyone about your condition. HBO's latest hit, The Last of Us, has had viewers essentially glued to their screens while we're talking about screen time the last Sunday, three Sunday nights. The show is an adaptation of a video game. It has filled HBO's prime Sunday evening slot. And in an era of binging, HBO and some other streamers are sticking to dropping weekly episodes for some of their hottest shows. It has renewed a debate over binge watching and which is better. Joining us now to talk about this is chief TV critic for Rolling Stone, Alan Seppenwall, and CNN entertainment reporter, Chloe Melas. Uh, Chloe Melas, we want to mention HBO shares the same parent company as CNN, which we all know. Uh, but the show, everyone I know is talking about it. Everyone is obsessed with it. But there is a question over how you watch TV. Do you watch it all at once? Do you, is it better to do a weekly drop for these biggest, uh, biggest shows? I mean, we've been talking about it for the last hour, so yeah. I'm going to let him take this one first because he has TV critic in the title of his name, so I'll let you go first. I would say, in general, there's a handful of shows that are better if you binge them, but for the most part, I think TV's better weekly. It's better episodically. I think this episode of The Last of Us is a great example of that. You're you just get, old school, Alan. I mean, yeah, I'm old and old school, but also, like, you get to spend a whole week thinking about this show, talking about it. You're seeing it on the same night as everybody else is seeing it, so when somebody does something really special, it still feels like an event, even in this really fragmented state of television where there's too many shows. You don't get that with a binge. This would be the third episode you would watch in a weekend, and then you would move on and you would forget about it. And everyone is talking about the last episode being one of the best hours of television, possibly ever. Really? Yes. And if you look at what our CNN critic, sorry, Brian Lowry <laughs> is saying, he says it's absolutely spectacular, and he's very... You know, critical. He doesn't like a lot of things. <laughs> Sorry, Brian, but you know, it's 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 it makes me want to speed up to this to the third episode. Now, I've been very introspective this morning about what I watch on television, and I oh. have I have discovered that I too am an old lady. Everything, everything, <laughs> we all are old everything that I like to watch on television is episodic. I will tell you what I watch. There's a theme here: Billions, Showtime, Episodic, Succession. 
love Succession, oh. HBO, Episodic. All of these shows are about money. No, <laughs> what, I need it. White Lotus, HBO. I yeah. mean, come on. I mean, I'm obsessed with Jennifer Coolidge. We talked at the Golden Globes, and I will tell you now, she's upset too that she's dead. That yes. she died. Yeah, yes, she told me this. She told me this, and I, I know. And then this is us. Sorry, gotta say it. I think it's great television. NBC. Is that all? I, I thought they were. It's done. over now. Yeah. But I'm telling you, like. Everything I like is appointment television. And I think that what it goes to show you is that people like a c communal yes. moments together and sharing this and talking about it and anticipating it together. Does that count for the original Law and Order that I watch over and over and over every single day? Turns it's out background. procedural TV <laughs> is still something that's really popular. Yep, yep. yep. You've got all the, these hits. I mean, Peacock just launched one that Ryan Johnson and Natasha Leone are doing called Poker Face, like the classic 70s-style mystery of the week. So... It's, re it's still really fun if you just watch one episode and then wait and get the next one a week or so How later. has no one mentioned Sopranos? Uh, I mean, Remember? Well, if you get me talking about Sopranos, we'll just be here all week. <laughs> I just, okay, so I'm old lady too, which is actually what Luca, my son, calls me. My son, Luke, because, is, my son call, Luke calls me old. Because anyway. cause we're old ladies, my yes. young producer had to email me about this last night. She's like, personally, as much as I love binge watching, I also love having something to look forward to each week and discuss it. I think she, a young viewer, yeah. nailed it. Because when it's all binge, then if you don't watch it right away, you're gonna find out on social media what's going on. But we will say though, adversely, some of the shows that you can binge, like Stranger Things on Netflix, quite possibly one of Netflix's biggest hits you were yeah. seeing. Yes. And, you know, also Wednesday Adams on Netflix was yes. incredibly popular. Yeah, that was very popular. Hulu had a show called The Bear, which I think would have gotten lost in the shuffle oh, if yeah. you had to watch one at a time. But because the algorithm would keep playing it for you, I think that really caught on back in the summer. So sometimes a binge can work. I just think for the most part, weekly episodic is, is still superior. And I think that the other thing that he spoke to me about, which I had never heard about before until this morning, and when I tell you, like, we've already, I already interviewed him this morning for like an hour. We're best friends. There is a decision fatigue which is the story of my life at night, where there's so much to watch on some of these streaming services, and I need something. I need order in my life. I need to be able to well, know what to, to watch. watch Law and order, I then. need to know what to watch every week. <laughs> I can't I, have all of these options. Um, you know, it, it can be too much. Now, binging went up I've, during the pandemic, yeah. you know, and that is still the more popular form of watching television. I feel like I got to the end of, like, streaming during the pandemic, and I've seen a lot of it, and I won't mention which, you know, streaming service. What are you watching service. right now? Um, are you honestly, like, you know, you know, I know I love Jennifer Coolidge and whatever. I've watched a lot of um, Apple. Yeah. Uh, not yeah. Apple TV, but YouTube. Like, yeah. I've, I narrow cast. And so it kind of feeds you what you want to see. So I very rarely watch anything in real time. And the reality this, TV is just, episodic. Just real quick, what is it, why are people upset about the introduction of this gay character, or at least, at least people figuring it out in the final episode? Well, of I mean, I definitely have seen a lot of excitement. A lot of people very sort of refreshingly were, were warmed by how beautiful this love story was. But I think there's a certain segment of the gamer audience in particular who is just in denial about this. My understanding in the game is that the character is very clearly gay, but it's a little bit implied, and here it was very explicit. And for them, they just don't want it, and it's unfortunate. But it made for a really special hour of TV. It's yes. getting rave reviews. Maybe the best ever. I yeah. cried right. multiple times. Yes. Because of that episode? Yes. It's, it's just Why? amazing. Nick Offerman, Murray Bartlett are incredible. It's a beautifully told love story in the space of a single hour of television. Thank you, guys. We cried. We laughed. We <laughs> <Exactly>. got <laughs> to learn about each other. I'm talking about this moment right now. Thank you very much, Chloe <laughs> Milosevic, Alex Eppenwall.
Thank you. And straight ahead here on CNN, why some car insurers are refusing to cover certain Hyundai and Kia models. And in just a few minutes, Tyree Nichols' brother will join CNN this morning live. What he believes should happen to the officers who beat his brother and the officials who failed to act when Tyree needed them most. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Oh, man, this is all so disturbing. Good morning, everyone. Thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning. The Memphis officer who said that he wanted to stomp Tyree Nichols now off the streets, along with another officer and several EMTs. We're going to have more on the latest firings and the fallout continues to grow here. Also this morning, millions of Americans across the South waking up to a brutal ice storm. We'll tell you when and where to expect the most treacherous conditions, including some sub-zero temps. And former President Trump now facing the real possibility of criminal charges over hush money payments to the adult film actress Stormy Daniels. We're going to begin with what Poppy just told you about with dangerous ice, ice storm that is sweeping the south, the governor of Arkansas declaring a state of emergency. Live look now near Fayetteville, Arkansas, nearly 40 million Americans from Texas to West Virginia are under winter weather alerts this morning. Dallas preparing for another round of freezing rain and sleet. And nearly a thousand flights have already been canceled today. Pete Montine standing by for us this morning. Good morning, Pete. How bad could these flight cancellations get today? Good morning, Don. You know, this is going to have a huge impact on air travel because Dallas is a huge hub, not only for American Airlines, but also a major hub at Dallas Love for Southwest Airlines. The FAA says also expect ground stops today in Austin, all the way to Memphis, which is the major hub for FedEx. Look at the numbers from yesterday. We saw about 1,800 cancellations yesterday. Today, that number is expected to go even higher. We've seen about 970 so far today. Outsized impact on Southwest Airlines. 40% of all cancellations nationwide were by Southwest yesterday, about a third so far today. I want you to listen now to passengers who are really trying to take this in stride. They're understanding about this. They know that the weather is out of an airline's control. Listen. We had a flight this morning at 9.20 and they canceled that flight due to weather. We were taking a trip to a conference in Orlando and I looked at the weather before we left and I told my wife, I said, I have a feeling flights might get canceled. Should I do this or not? But I went ahead and did it anyway. And lo and behold, flights got canceled. Let's put this all into context, Don. 16,700 cancellations. That's what we saw by Southwest over their major holiday meltdown. So far, Southwest has only canceled about 4% of that. So not that big just yet, although this storm is only just beginning. All right, Pete Montine, thank you very much. All right, this morning, two more police officers in Memphis are on leave after the beating death of Tyree Nichols. One of them has been identified as Preston Hemphill, who is white and allegedly deployed his taser during that confrontation. Hemphill was also a member of the now deactivated Scorpion Police Unit with the five other officers who are facing second-degree murder and other charges. Hemphill, we should note, has not been fired or charged. The Shelby County District Attorney Steve Mulroy says the investigation is ongoing. More charges could be filed. It, we're extraordinarily quick. Within less than three weeks, we went from the incident to 
uh, filing charges against the five officers who were primarily responsible for the death of Tyree Nichols and who were on that scene. Um, now, as to everybody else, it's going to take some time as we do that investigation, but I assure you, the investigation is ongoing. Also new, the Memphis Fire Department has fired two EMTs and a lieutenant after an internal investigation, which they found, quote, failed to conduct an adequate patient assessment of Mr. Nichols after he was pepper sprayed. And in just moments, Don is going to speak one-on-one -on -one with the brother of Tyree Nichols, Jamal Dupree. Well, happening now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is walking a diplomatic tightrope as he meets privately with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, the two hoping to dial back what has been really escalating tension between Israelis and Palestinians after weeks of deadly violence. On Monday, Blinken met with Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem. Our Nick Robertson is live from Ramallah on the West Bank. Nick, good morning to you. Good afternoon to you. That, I mean, when Blinken planned this trip, they did not know the level of escalation and violence that he would be, you know, descending on. They did not. So he's walked into a really tough situation, not only dealing with Israel's most right-wing government under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in decades, but now coming to the Palestinian Authority president, who has suspended security cooperation with Israel, a very significant move that happened in the past couple of days. And that's likely to be one of the things the Secretary Blinken asked Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, to do, to, to go back, begin cooperating security level with Israel. It benefits both communities. That'll be the message. The message uh, Secretary Blinken will hear from the Palestinians very likely, look, Please try to convince Israeli officials, politi politicians, Benjamin Netanyahu and his, uh, and his government not to expand settlements that aggravates the, the Palestinian street and as well to not come into Palestinian cities. Janine, where mm -hmm. on Thursday before that Palestinian gunman uh, went on to kill seven Israelis the day before nine Palestinians have been killed. So that's something that they're going to hear. Talk to people on the streets here about what uh, Secretary Blinken says about the importance of a two-state solution. Here, a lot of people, particularly young people, I talked to an 18-year-old young man here earlier today, and he said, look, we really don't think this two-state solution is viable or it's going to happen. And another thing you hear from a lot of people here, they just feel that the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas is no longer fit for the task fit for the job. So these are accumulative issues. Yeah. So for Secretary Blinken, that's a lot of heavy diplomatic lifting to shift this in a meaningful way. There is a lot of questions about what action can actually be taken and what Blinken can actually do in, in this situation. We'll hear from him in just about two hours during that press conference. Nick, thank you very much. Caitlin. Yeah. Also this morning, as former President Trump is embarking on his third presidential run in 2024, he is still facing several ongoing investigations. There is the investigation being led by the special counsel, Jack Smith, who is looking into two cases. The one, the potential mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and Trump's actions during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. A federal grand jury is currently hearing testimony in Washington, and as CNN first reported yesterday, prosecutors are actively working to gain access to files on a laptop belonging to at least one Mar-a-Lago staffer close to Trump, basically trying to see if there's any kind of electronic paper trail when it comes to the classified documents he took with him. The Department of Justice is also looking into the efforts by Trump and others to overturn the 2020 election and incite an insurrection, which has already resulted in hundreds of criminal indictments and nearly 500 guilty pleas. 
Also, the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, who is looking into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia, she has said that grand jury in that case has recommended multiple indictments. Her decision about whether to bring charges is also imminent. New York State's Attorney General Letitia James is suing former President Trump and his three eldest children and the Trump Organization for fraud. According to James, they misled lenders, insurers and tax authorities to enrich themselves. I should note that Trump's have denied any wrongdoing in that case. The Manhattan District Attorney has also started presenting its case to a grand jury about Trump's role in hush money payments to former adult actress Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential race. That's according to The New York Times. Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to campaign finance charges related to those payments that Cohen facilitated while he was working for then-candidate Trump. For more, let's bring in CNN correspondent Kara Scannell. This is a a pretty big escalation given, you know, we initially thought this hush money payment situation wasn't going anywhere. The the broader look into Trump's business practices. Right. I mean, what's old is new again, right? I mean, this hush money payment was the, that's how they started this investigation back in 2019, looking into the hush money payments. And then it expanded and they took this broader look at the business practices. Uh, you know, there's been a change in the district attorney. Alvin Bragg is now the DA. He paused that previous investigation because he didn't believe they had enough evidence to bring a criminal case against Trump because the burden of proof is so much higher. You know, they just had this big conviction last month of two Trump org entities for tax fraud. They seem to be emboldened and they've really picked up the pace with this focus now on hush monies yet again. I mean, we first reported that Michael Cohen went in two weeks ago and we first reported that David Peckert, the chairman, former chairman of the National Enquirer, which is involved in those catch and kill deals, uh, was, is, was going in this week. So we're definitely seeing the pace picking up here and they're reemerging this focus on hush money. But Alan Weisselberg is, is behind bars now. Trump has been complaining about this nonstop. I think he did so while he was on these campaign stops over the weekend. On Truth Social, he's been talking about it a lot. Is it harder to bring charges against Trump potentially if they don't have his cooperation? You know, I mean, it seems difficult to actually bring a conviction potentially here. Well, I mean, they have some Trump Organization insiders, but obviously Alan Weisselberg would be the key witness. And if he were to testify about his conversations with Michael Cohen, with the former president around this, that would be significant for the government. I mean, he is in Rikers right now serving this term. They obviously would still like his cooperation. He's no longer employed by the Trump Organization, although sources tell me he got a generous severance. Uh, he's obviously someone that they would want and would be so helpful to their investigation. Uh, you know, otherwise, they're looking to build it around all these other people using, you know, documents, records there. And Michael Cohen, of course, although he is a bit of a tainted witness, if they can corroborate what he has, they think that that would help their case. Were you surprised by this or did you kind of see it coming based on on the the conversations you've had with sources? I mean, I think we've seen that this was something that they were, you know, they're still interested in this case. I'm not surprised that they're moving forward with the grand jury. This is something that we've expected. They're bringing in people. They've made outreach to Stormy Daniels' attorney. They're really ramping this up. So I think we're, you know, whether, just because they're presenting does not mean they made a decision to charge. We should just be clear about that. Uh, But I think we're going to see this develop over the next several weeks and months. All right, Kara Scannell, thank you. Great reporting. So there's a new study that is warning that the planet could reach critical global warming thresholds even sooner than previously predicted, and even if the world takes uh, serious action to fight climate change. With the help of artificial intelligence, scientists were able to predict future temperatures based on current climate models. They say that the models show that the world would exceed a crucial temperature threshold between 2033 and 2035, even 
if pollution is cut down. Help us get through all of this, explain it to us. And its chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, is here to do all of this. Okay, so explain. Artificial intelligence, good morning. Good morning. And what does yes. that have to Artificial intelligence? It's, it's machine learning. You're hearing about the future of, of AI and how it's going to yeah. change everything for us. These scientists, one from Colorado State, one from Stanford, they took all of the climate models that science uses to predict what's going to happen. They put that with the historical record, and they realized the doom is coming faster than previously mm. predicted. It agrees with the latest IPC assessment, CC assessment, that we're going to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's this sort of crucial tipping point uh, that the world has decided on by the middle of the next decade or so, by 2035, 2036. But beyond that... Uh, where this machine learning differs from the consensus science is that even if everything is done, a certain amount of warming is already built in. And we could hit temperatures by 2065 that a lot of people thought weren't coming until the end of the century. Well, that's the whole thing about 2065. That's when we're, the world is supposed to reach. They, it was predicted the probability of 80%. Right, yeah. Right, that two degrees warming will be reached before 2065, even if the world reaches net zero in the next 50 years. So explore, what does all that mean? So the number, here's the thing to think about. The number two degrees Celsius, uh, the prime minister of Barbados, that's a death sentence for island nations. She just said that at the last COP27. That number was decided on when it was decided that 1.5 degrees, if we stopped warming there, it would obliterate island nations, low-lying nations. So they moved it to 1.5. But now it seems that so much momentum is built into the system, so little is happening globally, politically, that a certain amount of warming is built in. And, and the lesson to policymakers is both brace and try to stop the worst warning. There's still so much can be done to cut the emissions. We were showing the, the river there. The federal government called on seven Western states to agree to a water conservation plan cut between two and four million acre uh, feet of water uses to save the Colorado River last year. What is going on right now with the Colorado River? Basically, you've got a fight between California and everybody else. Seven states in Mexico share the Colorado. They share it by a compact that was made over a century ago after one of the wettest years. First in line is the Imperial Irrigation District, farmers around Southern California. They're entitled to more water than Nevada and Arizona combined. Wow. If you look at the old record. But the new argument is we don't live in that world anymore. Everybody's got to cut back in order to keep this system from crashing, to keep Lake Mead from hitting Deadpool. And for that to happen, California has to cut more. So this is headed to the Supreme Court, it looks like, as all these states line up to force more mandatory cuts for California. Fascinating, Bill. We're, and what AI, the role that AI is playing in this whole climate crisis. Don, it's a tool. It's yeah. like a knife or a flame. It could heal or kill, <laughs> depending on who's holding it. So that's what we got to think about with these new tools. So weird. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. Always then. a pleasure. Good to see you. And you can read more about this study on CNN.com. Poppy? Well, in France, hundreds of thousands of protesters are taking to the streets. The unions have once again called for nationwide strikes, disrupting everything from schools to transportation. They're very angry about the government's plans to raise the retirement age two years to 64. Let's go to Melissa Bell. She joins us live in Paris this morning. For a lot of people, I think they'll look at this and say, haven't we seen this? And they have. But the government hasn't changed its position. No, in fact, in fact, Papi has been explaining its determination to see through this reform. This is at the very beginning of the march that students set off in about half an hour's time. They're setting up themselves there, as you can see, a lot of noise generally within these 
uh, demonstrations and they're preparing to march from up there on Place d'Italie across Paris. One of the big questions is going to be how many people they can get out in the streets. The 19th of January was the last big demonstration against this pension reform. More than a million people came out on the streets. This time the trade unions say they intend to get more. Their plan to have Emmanuel Macron back down from this reform that he's pledged to get through by the summer. It's extremely ambitious given the levels of opposition out on the streets, the unity of the French trade unions, but he's determined that it will be through by the summer so that by the autumn, Poppy, the French retirement age will be raised, raised by two years. The point of the streets and the trade unions is to cause enough trouble, enough disruption over the course of the coming weeks that this most reformist of presidents is obliged to back down on what was always one of his key reform pledges, Poppy. Always was. Melissa Bell, thank you very much. Live for us in Paris. Caitlin. Also this morning here in the U.S., two of America's biggest auto insurers, Progressive and State Farm, are refusing to write policies for some older Hyundai and Kia models. That's because they say they lack the theft prevention technology known as electronic immobilizers, basically making them too easy to steal. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich is here with us now. Is this temporary or what are what's Hyundai and Kia saying about this? It's kind of remarkable that they're saying it's that easy to steal it, that they just can't offer these policies anymore for them. Yeah, for any new insurance policies on Kia and Hyundai vehicles made from about 2015 to 2019, they found that it was twice as likely that their models, Kia and Hyundai, would get stolen than a regular vehicle. And it's because of these electronic immobilizers. It's basically a chip in the car that connects to an actual physical key. And the models from 2015 to 2019 don't have that. So you saw a lot of theft, especially in certain regions around the country. They wouldn't identify which regions. So so this is affecting certain regions and certain states. But this became a trend. We saw it on TikTok. There was a Kia challenge where people would essentially show you how easy it was to steal a Kia. They would use USBs to steal the car instead of having the key. It's that easy. So Progressive and State Farm saying that no new policies. If you do have a current policy, though, they will certainly honor that. And they are also saying that their new vehicles, the ones with the little sort of push buttons, those are good. It's just the ones with the physical keys made between that time period. So basically, if you own one of these cars and you go to get an insurance policy, there's nothing you can do? Well, you can obviously look for another uh, Another insurer. um, But Kia and Hyundai are offering sort of enhanced security for the car. They're not going to fix the problem. They're offering enhanced security. Hyundai also saying they will give you a free steering wheel lock. Uh, but who yeah, wants to do generous. that every time? Right. I mean, that's pretty old school. Like that... Back to the 80s with the big bar. Is that also, what imagine you're like on a date and you're like, oh, wait, one second, let me just... Uh... Right, so they're, they're not offering you a new car. They're not offering you a better system. But, you know, if you still love your Kia or Hyundai, from 2015, 2016, and onwards, they'll give you that free lock. At least Hyundai will. Okay. Thanks, Thank Vanessa. you, Vanessa. Thanks. Appreciate it. Wow. Up next, a sit-down interview with Tyree Nichols' brother. We're going to get his reaction to more officers being taken off or more officials in general being taken off the streets after the violent beating and what he thinks should be done to the officers who are now facing murder charges. Jamal Dupree joins us live. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Authorities in Lakeland, Florida are asking for the public's help and offering $5,000 of reward money after a drive-by shooting on Monday left 10 people shot, two of them in critical condition. Police say the suspect fired from a four-door Nissan with tinted windows and temporary tags. Um, this is something that doesn't happen in Lakeland. I've been here 34 years, and I can tell you I have never worked an event where this many people have been shot at one time, ever. Officials say it was a targeted shooting, and they are now looking for at least four males who may have been wearing face coverings. As the U.S. sees mass shootings on a regular basis, more stories are emerging of bystanders who put their lives on the line to disable their attackers. Federal guidance says that to run, hide, fight in an active shooting situation. But now experts are beginning to rethink that advice. CNN's Bren Gengrass reports now. This is the moment Brandon Say fought back. He was preparing his weapon to fire. Disarming a gunman in Monterey Park, California. In Colorado Springs, it was an Army veteran. And I needed to save my family. Who helped wrestle away a gun from a shooter at Club Q nightclub, saving countless lives. James Shaw Jr. disarmed an active shooter inside a Tennessee Waffle House in 2018. The decision to fight was because... It was nothing else. It was nothing else for me to lose in that moment. With seemingly daily mass shootings in America, more people are fighting their assailants. Heroic acts that now have some in the law enforcement community openly saying. The time is now to, to rethink uh, how we prioritize what we're telling people who might find themselves in a mass shooting. You've probably heard these three words, run, hide, fight. You can survive a mass shooting. If you're prepared, those tactics from the FBI are echoed to law enforcement agencies across the country. They're used to teach civilians about how to react if confronted by an active shooter. Security expert Juliette Kayem penned in a recent article that advice may be dated. Look, run if you can. Get away if you can. But what we've seen is that engagement with the shooter, trying to distract him, trying to demobilize him, trying to prevent him from uh, reloading his gun, all of those things can help in minimizing the harm. 50% of active shooter events end before law enforcement get there. It doesn't even matter how much we train for these active events but it matters a lot on how we train our civilians. Franklin County Sheriff's Deputy Mike Featherolf has already adopted a different way of teaching his community on what to do in an active shooter situation. You teach avoid, deny, defend. Correct. How is that different from run, hide, fight? Hide. That's the big part that is different. These people go around looking for targets. And when you have a hero step up, it saves all those targets from being potential victims. Experts recognize fighting back hasn't always worked. In 2019, a North Carolina college student charged a gunman and died. A week later, a Colorado high school student met the same fate. For Shaw, who lived when he fought back. Everybody's not wired like that. But if that's the only thing that you can do in that situation, that's the only thing that you can do. The more we understand what tactics uh, of engagement do work, uh, the more we can empower people to help and protect themselves. Look, this is not a comfortable conversation to have. It's not one where you want to tell people just fight. And that's really what you should be doing in these active shooter situations. But everyone I talked to for this story basically says, 
Listen, this is where we are right now. We are seeing active shooting situations go, you know, almost daily. And so now it's really about changing the mentality. And that's what the focus is on this, getting sort of a different plan in your head of what actually might be working. And what they're looking at, there's no statistics for this. It's just anecdotal. What they're seeing is that fight option has actually been working, as you've seen in just some recent cases. It's awful that we even have to think about it. Exactly. You know I mean? yeah. Exactly. Thank you, Bren. All right. Appreciate that. Well, up next, I'm going to speak with Tyree Nichols' brother, plus this. This campaign will be about the future. Former President Trump is promising to focus on new beginnings for 2024, but he's still dwelling on past grievances. The concerns I'm hearing from his allies and his inner circle, that's next. Welcome back, everyone. Fallout from the deadly police beating of Tyree Nichols now includes the firing of three Memphis fire department personnel and an announcement that a total of seven police officers were placed on leave as calls nationwide grow louder for police reform. I'm joined now in his first national TV interview by Tyree Nichols' brother, Jamal Dupree, and attorney for the Nichols family, Benjamin Crump. Gentlemen, I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, Jamal, let me just say I'm sorry that you're dealing with this, um, and I just am grateful that you're on to talk about your brother and, and talk about his legacy and what you want to happen from this. So thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. So listen, your brother died three three days three weeks ago. Excuse me, died three weeks ago. How are you holding up? What it, what has this been like for you these last few weeks? Well, for the most part, it's just been a real roller coaster ride. Um, it's like a, a never-ending nightmare, and um, you know, we just try every day. Me and my family, and my sisters and my brothers, we just trying every day to just take one step each day. That's all. One step each day. What do you want people to know about him? I mean, what the people don't know about him. I mean. My brother's legacy is everywhere right now. Everybody knows that my brother was an innocent person. My everybody knows that my brother was filled with energy. He was like the light of the room, you know. He um, cared about people. Uh, he put people before he put himself. Like, he was very selfless. Um, he was just all around a, a great person to be around. And, you know, it, it sucks that this happened to him, you know, like, like some people in this world, you just feel like that should never happen. It should never happen to anybody. But at the same time, it's like when you see a person like that and you know a person like that, it's just, it's, it just takes a toll on you different because he was really a people person. You know, he was a people pleaser and, um, yeah, like the world's gonna miss a person like that. Yeah, uh, I know that you've been very outspoken in what you believe should happen to these officers who are charged with murder. What do you think should happen? Most definitely. I mean, I hope they meet the same fate as my brother. That's just how I feel. You know, I mean, I don't know what the laws is in Tennessee or whatnot, but. For me, I believe they deserve the death penalty. What was your reaction when you saw that video? That's the thing. I haven't watched it. Mm. 
but I already knew from looking at my brother, I already knew how they treated him because I've seen it all over the world. I've seen it right here in California all the time. Police brutality is nothing new. And I already knew, as soon as I seen them photos from him in the hospital, I already knew that they treated my brother like an animal. They beat on him like he was nothing. I don't have to watch the video to see to know that. So, yeah. You you said on on Facebook you posted that uh, basically saying that you you were sorry that you weren't there to protect your brother. Are you feeling guilty about not being there? Most definitely. Always, always. And I think I speak for all my siblings when I say that because my brother, I'm 99 per, I'm 99% sure my brother's never gotten into a fight before, you know? And the one time he get into an altercation with other humans, we wasn't there to protect him. You know, as growing up as kids, you know, having older brother or older sister and you get into an altercation, your older brother, your older sister will be there to help you. And on this night, uh, what was it, January 7th, my brother was left alone. Because if I was there, they would have to kill me too. Because I would have fought all of them. My brother was trying to cooperate with them. I would have fought back with them. Then let me bring you into the conversation because you know there have been many developments. They seem to come every single day. There are three Memphis Fire Department personnel who uh, have been fired. Uh, there are also two other officers now are on leave pending an administrative hearing. What's your response to that and what questions do you have about it? Well, Don, I think as uh, Tyree's family and certainly Jamal have been calling for from the beginning, every last one of them should be held accountable for this, uh, this police lynching of Tyree Nichols. I, everybody who was on that scene who contributed in any way should be held fully accountable. And the fact that they relieved the two officers weeks ago and were not transparent uh, only brings further questions as to why the five black officers were fired and charged and why weren't the others not charged. And so the family wants full accountability. Did you see the original police report? And then considering what the video shows, how does that line up, Ben? Well, it, it, it is consistent with, with Miss Robin Tyree mother said from the beginning when they told them that they could not go to the hospital because Tyree had been pepper sprayed and tased and that he was arrested. She said then, Don Lemon, and you talked with Miss Rovine, and she's a very sincere person. She said she believed that she thought it was a conspiracy to cover it up from the beginning. Ben, I've got to ask you, there's a lot of stuff out there. And I just in, in the spirit of accuracy, right, and, and good journalism, did Tyree have any personal connection to the officers or do you believe that this was completely random? 
Don, the family knows nothing about these rumors. What we do know is that you saw multiple officers violating his civil rights. And we don't have to speculate about anything because they were operating under the color of law. And these police officers know that you cannot violate people's civil rights, Don Lemon. And this is nothing new to the Scorpion unit. When you think about the other citizens who said they were attacked like that. So this is a pattern and practice of police brutality, period, point blank. Jamal, before we go, I just want to know, is there anything you want people to know about your brother or what you want to see next from this? Um, you know, I believe everybody knows my brother now. I, I've seen stuff on my brother from all across the country, even across the world, to be honest. And I think people really know that my brother did not deserve this. He was not that type of person. Um, yeah, he, he was just, man, like, yeah, he was just a, a, a good guy around the board. So people know who he is. And uh, again, I'm gonna say the same thing I've been saying. Uh, we want justice. We want everybody that was involved with this to, you know, get that sentence. Like yeah. Jamal, thank you. Please give our regards uh, to your family. Ben, thank you as well. Give our regards, especially Ms. Ravon and Mr. Rodney. We appreciate you joining us and we will speak to you soon as this continues. Thanks so much. <clears throat> thank you. Thank you. What do you think? Uh, I think it's tough. Um, obviously, I, I think this family, under the circumstances, I mean, I have to commend the way that they have handled themselves. Look, I'm in the business of being on television every day. And if something like this happened to not a loved one, but just someone I know, I don't know if I would have the strength mm. um, to be able to come on television and open my heart and bear my worst fears in front of the world. Yeah. And, you know, what really stood out to me was what he was talking about being an older brother and being yeah. there for your siblings. You know, we've talked about this a lot and I'm really close with my older siblings. And it, just to hear that, you know, it really is so relatable for so many people to think about that relationship and what impact that has had on you. Yeah. I just think it's an extraordinary family. I you know, you do these interviews. How do they do it? I don't know. Actually, that's what my husband always says to me is how do these people open up in the way that they do? I had seen that the Tyree's parents, who you just did that powerful interview with on Friday, are going to be at the State of the Union. They're going to be at the State of the Union. Um, we'll but it, it's we'll be there covering in yeah. D.C. And, and we'll have to figure it out. But listen, as I, uh, when I spoke to um, the pastor, not who's giving the eulogy because the um, Reverend Sharpton is giving the eulogy, but the pastor's in charge of the church, he says he believes that it has been um, for the family and for the community that in a way it has helped people because they get their feelings out. You know, they're able to get their feelings out and they feel like they have a platform and it gives them at least, you know, some feeling of having some sort of power, at least in this particular situation. So it's a great interview. Yeah. All right. Up next this morning, we're going to talk about former President Trump and whether or not he can focus his campaign on the future or if he's stuck in the past, like some of his advisors believe. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. They're sending people that are, are killers, murderers. They're sending rapists. 
President Trump says his 2024 campaign is going to be focused on the future, but there are some grievances he can't just quit. We're going to restore election integrity. We have to. You go to New York, nobody ever gets prosecuted. I'm the only one they go after. They're sending people that are, are killers, murderers. They're sending rapists, and they're sending, uh, frankly, terrorists. We have a woke military that can't fight or win. And the wind turbines are all made in China. They said he's not doing rallies. He's not campaigning. Maybe he's lost that step. Uh, we didn't. I'm more angry now and I'm more committed now than I ever was. That was not from Trump's first campaign or his second one. That was from last weekend. Several of his allies are telling me that they're worried he's stuck in the past and are concerned about the viability of his third run. Their message to him has been to move forward, tone down his messages, stick to the teleprompter in those speeches. But I'm told he's pushing back on that advice, arguing that he believes his message is strong enough and that he doesn't think any Republicans should actually challenge him for the nomination. Right now, he is having a hard time convincing some people to join his campaign. A source says at least three people have been offered jobs on the 2024 Trump campaign, but turned them down, suggesting maybe they'll join later on. No one knows more about these dynamics than CNN's three insiders, former Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Alyssa Farah, who served in the Trump White House, and, of course, Congressman Mondaire Jones from here in New York. Uh, you saw the message. He said, I'm angrier than ever. Is that is that the start to the 2024 Trump campaign, you think? <laughs> Like, it was a funny quote, if not totally scary. You don't want your elect elected officials to be running on a message of, I am angry, and not angry over righteous things, you know, poverty, homelessness, whatever it might be, but angry because of his own personal grievances, that he didn't win the election in 2020. This has been a bad launch from the start for Trump. And why do you think so? It, Low energy. I mean, we all watched the launch that day um, and it didn't come with a lot of fanfare. It took him um, over two months to even do a campaign event. He can't pull the rally events. You've covered many of them. I've been to many of them. He can't pull the audience he once did. But point of caution, he's still pulling the highest. Um, and so long as he has that 30 percent on lock, I don't see how anyone can beat him. What do you think of how he's returned to the campaign trail so far? Because it has been kind of a slow start. These were his first yeah. really formal events of this year. Well, he's tired. He's put on some age. I think he's he's running the same script. There's going to be teleprompter Trump, and then there's off-teleprompter Trump. Teleprompter Trump may talk a little bit about the future. Off-teleprompter Trump will be all about the past. And I think one of the areas, you know, as Alyssa said with the, this, I'm angry and all this negativity, that works sometimes in an election. It doesn't work all the time in an election. And it's time, I think, as a Republican to say leaders have to start actually putting some optimism out there. When you hear them talk down the U.S. military, look, I disagree with some of the stuff that happens in the U.S. military as a military member. You know, we spend half our time doing computer-based training and not actually training to fight. But we have the best military in the world. We can defeat any enemy. And to listen to the former president talk it down and say we can't defeat enemies anymore, I mean, that's that's like worse than than the old, you know, malaise in America kind of thing. Yeah, but he is still the front runner as of now. No one else has even declared that they're running, though it's only a matter of time. But I wonder, with this kind of a message, is this something that, you know, with Biden on the cusp of announcing that he's going to run for re-election, that this is going to be a concern for him? Is he worried about anything like so. this? I think if you're Joe Biden and you're the White House, you're happy to see this president once again engage in grievance politics that say more about him as a person, his character defects, than they do about the people and the institutions that he's criticizing. When is he going to make the affirmative case for why he should get a second term in the White House? And by that, 
person, I mean Donald Trump, of course. He's not doing that. I don't think he's capable of doing that. I mean, it turns out a lot of the stuff he wants to do is not particularly popular to begin with. And so he's going to keep trying to divide, divide, divide. But I don't think it's going to go anywhere because he's no different from the guy that voters rejected back in 2020. Yeah, well, we'll see. That's kind of what his allies have been saying to him, that you need to change your message. But I'm curious, Alyssa, what you think of what Senator Lindsey Graham said last night, because he was asked about the possibility of other Republicans getting in the race. He said he's still betting on Trump. To all these people who are very talented, I don't think you could do what he could, what he did. And I want him to have another shot. Unfinished business. We need to get ready for a real spirited contest. Now, why Trump? Now, you mentioned like DeSantis. If you try to tell me that Ron DeSantis is not a good governor in Florida, I'm not going to listen to you. If you try to tell me Mike Pompeo is not qualified to be president, I'm not going to listen to you because I think he is. I am for Trump, not because of the flaws of anybody else. I'm for Donald Trump because I know what I'm going to get. Oh, Lindsay, um, I know what I'm going to get. Does he mean insurrection, trying to overthrow American democracy? Um, it's Listen, there's some core supporters of his who are always going to be with him. But I do think there's going to be a contest. Um, how big it is, unclear. Um, there are people who are going to put their names in the ring. Um, listen, if you run as Trump light, this is my concern with DeSantis, who obviously pulls the closest to Trump, is... Um, he kind of takes up all the oxygen in the room. You have to have a clearly defined lane. This is where some of the governors who are toying with running, an Asa Hutchinson, a Yunkin, a Sununu, I think have a more clear path. They have their own record and their own vision to run on. But again, I caution against the giant field that we saw in 2016 that just cleared the way for Donald Trump. Can I yeah. say something about Lindsey Graham, by the way? So I have traveled <laughs> with Lindsey. Lindsey and I used to be kind of in the same mindset on foreign policy and things like that, kind of, you know, the John McCain way of looking at the world. Where he has gone now, I just completely don't understand. He knows far better than anybody what January 6th was. He knows what Donald Trump isn't capable of, which is true leadership. And for me, it's just so disappointing every day to watch somebody who was frankly talented. I mean, Lindsey Graham was able to really bring people that would be considered independents, maybe some soft Democrats, and he's just gone all in. I don't know his Why? play here. Probably just to survive South Carolina. I mean, look, he is a he wants to stay in Senate the rest of his life. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But the only way to do that is to make it through a primary in South Carolina. And when the Trump thing goes out of vogue in the party, and it will, maybe it's soon, maybe it's later, he'll go back to being what he needs to be to be reelected. It's a sad commentary, frankly, on politics. Yeah. There was this moment that I know I talked to people inside the White House. It caught their attention that is something that Senator Elizabeth Warren said. She was doing a radio interview and she was asked about about Biden running again. And she was asked about Vice President Harris specifically and whether or not she belongs on the 2024 ticket. This was her answer. Should Joe Biden run again for president? He'll be 86 by the time his second term is over. If he yes, does. he should run again. If he's that old in his second term, the vice presidency becomes even more important. Mm -hmm. Should Kamala Harris be the, his choice the second time around? You know, I, I really want to defer to what makes Biden comfortable on his team. I've known Kamala for a long time. I like Kamala. I knew her back when she was when she was an attorney general and I was still uh, uh, teaching and we worked on the housing crisis together. So we go way back, but they need they have to be a team. And my sense is they are. I don't mean that by suggesting I think there are any problems. Mm, that's not how the White House took it. She later put out a statement <laughs> saying she didn't mean to intend or imply that she doesn't think they're a great team. But 
That was kind of a moment that wasn't as emphatic of endorsement as people suspected it might be. You know, I think people are reading too much into it. I think she intended to do what she said initially, which was defer to the president. Um, I don't think that there's any reason that she or anyone else would believe that the president would not run with his vice president for a second term. Um, there are concerns within the party. I mean, that's, that's, that's obvious. And about what? I think, you know, people wonder about, you know, her, her popularity. But the fact is... She won on the ticket back in 2020. Um, if anything, they have more to run on in order to be able to, you know, survive a challenge by Donald Trump or I think many of the other people like Ron DeSantis who are thinking about running on the Republican side. And I think you'll see that happen. Does she help or hurt Biden on the ticket? I think she helps with certain demographics. Uh, and then she's, you know, hurtful with respect to other demographics. But ultimately, it's the top of the t- ticket that matters, especially when she's clearly qualified, unlike a Sarah Palin, who I think was a reason why many people voted against John McCain. Fascinating times. Mondaire Jones, Adam Kinzinger, Alyssa Farah, Griffin, thank you all three for joining us. Yeah. All right. Also this morning, we've been talking about the weather for three hours now. Freezing rain, plunging temperatures. They are already causing about 1,000 flight cancellations across the country this morning. It is getting worse. We'll tell you about the areas that are getting hit the hardest next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Good morning. The first wave of a winter storm underway for millions across the U.S., and it's already canceled a thousand flights. We're live on the ground. In Memphis, two more officers and three EMT workers all off the job this morning for their response in the beating of Tyree Nichols. This as we are hearing Nichols in his own words for the first time. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken walking a diplomatic tightrope this morning as violence is escalating in the Middle East. Right now, he is in the West Bank meeting with the Palestinians. Another suspicious incident at the Dallas Zoo. Two monkeys believed to be stolen just weeks after fences were cut and a vulture died mysteriously. Also this. another TV icon, Laverne and Shirley star Cindy Williams, dying at 75 for family remembering her as kind and generous with a, quote, brilliant sense of humor. CNN This Morning starts right now. We are going to begin with a dangerous ice storm freezing the south right now. From Texas all the way to West Virginia, nearly 40 million Americans are under winter weather alerts. This is a live look in Arkansas where the governor has declared a state of emergency. The National Weather Service says this is going to be a prolonged and significant ice storm, which will last until at least Thursday. Nearly 1,000 flights already canceled today, including hundreds of flights out of Dallas. We had a flight this morning at 9.20 and they canceled that flight due to weather. We were taking a trip to a conference in Orlando and I looked at the weather before we left and I told my wife, I said, I have a feeling flights might get canceled. Should I do this or not? But I went ahead and did it anyway. And lo and behold, flights got canceled. CNN's Ed Lavendera starts us off in Dallas this morning. Ed, good morning. People are bracing for some serious travel chaos. What's the latest? 
Well, it's going to be several days of this uh, treacherous, uh, these treacherous conditions on roadways all across Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas, as well into the upper Midwest as, as well. But these winter weather warnings and advisories uh, stretching from all the way down as far south as San Antonio. We are hearing of about a thousand flights that have already been canceled. We expect that to continue to worsen throughout the day. Um, and we are hearing a, a number of reports of uh, accidents and uh, rollovers all over roadways across North Texas. So emergency officials, traffic officials really urging the public if to stay off the roadways. If you don't have to be out, uh, they're telling, asking people to please stay off these roadways because what you see behind me is many of these people taking those warnings to heart. This was 7 a.m., normal rush hour traffic time of day, but you can see the traffic uh, very light here on the roadways in the Dallas area where we are this morning. And that is in large part because so many school districts across the region canceled schools well before this morning in anticipation of the worst of this storm. So uh, right now the area is expected uh, to see uh, sleet and freezing rain falling off and on uh, sporadically throughout the day, but sustaining for uh, perhaps well until tomorrow as, as well. So, Don, that is what so many millions of people here across the North Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas region are preparing for over the next 48 hours. Ed Lavender and Dallas, Ed, thank you. Meanwhile, here in New York City, we are apparently breaking records for doing nothing. A live look outside right now shows a lot of fog. We could see some snowflakes soon, but we've been snowless for far too long, in my opinion. <laughs> Senior data reporter Harry Anton is here. Come on with the snow. Come on with the snow. Okay, this morning's number is... Zero inches of snow have accumulated in New York City, D.C., Philly, and Baltimore. Zero inches this weekend. And in New York City, as you were hinting at, we have broken the all-time record for latest measurable snowfall dating all the way back to the 1869-1870 winter. It's going to be after January 30th. When it will be, who the heck knows, the previous record was January 29th from 1972 to 1973. So we broke a 50-year record. And if we look at latest snowfalls in other major northeast cities or mid-Atlantic cities, we're on our way, baby. We could be breaking records all over the place. So if we look at the latest first snow measured, if any, since the 1800s, all of these records occurred in 1972 to 73. We got to get to February 21st in Baltimore, February 23rd in Washington, D.C. Philly, we can't break the record. We can only tie it because it was snowless in the 72-73 winter. Wow. Now, if you're thinking about why have we had no snow, I think this gives you a pretty good understanding. New York City consecutive days with an above normal temperature. Look at this, Poppy. 34 and counting. That is a record setback. Basically, this is the record, folks. This is the record. I walked yesterday, Poppy. Felt so nice walking I know. outside. My had kids no had no jacket on when I picked them up at school. Whatever, you know I want the snow. I want the snow, too. That's why I went to weather camp and I went to school in New Hampshire. You, I love no, the snow. No, you went to weather camp? I did go to weather camp at Penn State. <laughs> State College. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Back to you guys. All right, we want to take you back to Memphis this morning where the fallout is continuing as three Memphis Fire Department employees have now been fired for violating policy and protocol and their response to Tyree Nichols. Two more Memphis officers have also been relieved of duty. And last hour, we heard for the first time from Tyree Nichols' brother. This is what he told Don about what he thinks should happen to the officers who brutally beat his brother. I hope they meet the same fate as my brother. That's just how I feel, you know. I mean, I don't know what the laws is in Tennessee or whatnot, but for me, I believe they deserve the death penalty. If I was there, they would have to kill me too. 
because I would have fought all of them. My brother was trying to cooperate with them. I would have fought back with them. CNN's Ryan Young is live in Memphis with more. Ryan, I mean, obviously those are powerful words from his brother. brother but what are, what were we learning about the fallout that we are seeing continuing about these additional officers? They've now been relieved from duty. Uh, what's behind this? Well, you know, investigators said they would continue this investigation, but I, I feel like you can't move on from those words that you guys heard just last hour. I mean, that was a powerful interview that Don did. And sometimes you say you understand how family members feel. I don't think any of us can understand that pain that that family is going through. And then, of course, Don asking that question to Ben Crump about all the rumors that have been flying around about these investigations and Ben Crump pretty much saying there is no connection between uh, Tyreek and any of these officers so far that they've been able to find out. But going back to this investigation, look, we've seen this move at lightning speed in terms of or the police department looking at the videotape of firing the five officers and then charges coming. And now we see two additional officers being relieved of duty. Uh, Preston Hempfield, he is the white officer who fired his taser. It could be heard making a comment on that taser, hoping that they stop him. And that was the person who was relieved of duty yesterday. So we're starting to see investigators make those further moves. And those three MTs have been relieved. Now, there's one thing that's still under question that we'll have to ask investigators and police about today is that seventh officer who has been relieved of duty. That person's identity hasn't been released just yet. But everyone's sort of been scouring through that video, looking at the actions of the people on the scene. And when you watch that video, it's so uh, heartbreaking to see no one really responding to Tyreek as he's on the ground. Yeah, and we just see this follow-up going. Ryan Young, thank you so much for that update. We have heard from Tyree Nichols' mother and his stepfather. We've heard from his brother. We've heard from his friends. But the one person we can't hear from is Tyree himself. We barely know what his voice sounds like. On the body cam video, it is only the second, the sound of distress that you're hearing. Listen. You guys are really doing a lot right now. Bro, lay down. I'm just trying to go home. Man, if you don't lay down. I am on the ground. He was just trying to go home. Tyree Nichols will be remembered for how he died, but we should also remember how he lived and what he sounded like outside of that deadly beating. And this business reporter, um, in this business, reporters, I should say, sometimes do the man on the street interviews, you know, where we talk to people on the street about what they're experiencing, um, journalists asking real people about their experiences. Well, five years ago, Tyree Nichols happened to be one of those real people who someone spoke to. He spoke to a reporter in Sacramento about his six-hour wait at the DMV. It's a mundane but very relatable topic, but here's Tyree in his own words. Uh, I've been here since uh, 10 o'clock, well, 9.45, and the experience has been a very long wait. Uh, it's been very agonizing and very agitating waiting here and let, having everyone go in front of you, appointments, and you're here stuck. So that was my experience. It was a really bad one, actually. I haven't been here in five years, and this is probably the worst time ever. And the reporter who spoke to him that day said Tyree was upbeat and remarkably patient. Well, we have a big development this morning in New York that could put uh, one more hurdle in the way of former President Trump's new White House bid. The New York Times is reporting the Manhattan District Attorney has begun presenting evidence to a grand jury about hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential election. Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, served three years in prison for charges tied to those payments while working for then-candidate Trump. The development signals that District Attorney Alvin Bragg is nearing a decision about whether to potentially charge Trump. 
Here is what he told us on CNN this morning just last month. Is that correct that you are looking to jumpstart that criminal inquiry? Well, so first I'm going to take issue with the word jumpstart. Uh, as I said, it's you know, the we, Times we, word, we, not we, ours. I know, I understand. Uh, you know, we have been continuously working with, with rigor um, throughout the year. Uh, and you're going to be maybe displeased with the answer because I'm not going to, we have not confirmed or denied. As you said, that's the Times reporting. Um, look, we're working on a number of uh, pieces and perspectives with this. Like I said, this is one chapter, an important chapter, uh, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, tentacles, if you will, will. We're following the facts where they go. You said in the, and to the New York Times and also in other interviews, I've heard you saying that this was, this was just a chapter and people shouldn't read ahead in the book. I'm wondering what that means. Is that because that sort of looks like people are saying, like you're saying to people, stay tuned. There's something on the horizon. So, you know, what I'm saying is let's pause for the moment as we are. This was I think it's very consequential. uh, The work that went into this, how ably the people of the state of New York were represented. Um, But as I said back in April, there's there's other work going on Um, and we're continuing that. Um, It wasn't pause. We've been doing it. So let's talk about all this with Maggie Haberman, CNN political analyst and senior political correspondent for The New York Times. This is a big deal, Maggie, uh, because his predecessor, Cy Vance, had brought together a grand jury to look at Trump's broader business practices. The DA, who our viewers just heard from, Alvin Bragg, stopped that, got a lot of criticism, now started this, which hinges on likely the cooperation of Alan Weisselberg, the former Trump CFO, if they can get that, and a Difficult legal theory, but it could come with a significant toll to the former president. That's right. As you note, it's not a slam dunk. It's not clear that this case will definitely end in charges. But the mere fact of the existence of this special grand jury, which means that it's meeting over six months as opposed to a 30-day grand jury, is significant and is yet another legal threat to the former president, who is facing probably a number of them. This is also on a topic that he gets very, very sensitive about. You know, we saw him posting on his social media website about it yesterday. Um, This relates not just to payments, but to his family. And so we will see where it goes. There's other work. He said in that interview, there's other work going on. And he said that a number of times. I think it was during that interview related to the first question because they were wrapping up. Remember, it was the investigation into the uh, Trump, right, in, into the Trump organization. Uh, and then I followed and asked a question. Poppy asked a question, and then we followed again. And he just kept saying, I would not get ahead. There's other stuff going on. So I, I'm just wondering what this means in Trump world for the entire investigation. And a lot of this, Maggie, we should remember, stemmed from Michael Cohen's testimony to Congress, in front of Congress. Yeah, look, Michael Cohen is at the center of a a, a bunch of investigations uh, that have taken place over the course of the last several years, but particularly in New York, uh, where he is a key figure. He's a key figure here. He was the key witness in the investigation of Trump's business. And it's worth remembering on that investigation, you know, as you know, uh, the district attorney did not end up, the current district attorney did not end up bringing charges. One of the prosecutors who worked on that case was very upset about it, wrote a pretty angry resignation letter and is now writing a book. So I can't totally divorce what Alvin Bragg is saying about ongoing work from the fact of that upcoming book. But I do think that Alvin Bragg wants to signal very clearly to the public and certainly to Donald Trump, you are still under scrutiny. Yeah, and Michael Cohen, you know, they could say, well, he's a convicted criminal. You know, he's not a reliable person for this. But what's your sense, Maggie, is, you know, we've talked to people in Trump's inner circle all the time of how he's viewing all of these investigations, all of this as he's, you know, now actually doing events on his 2024 run. 
This is, Kalen, the, the closest that he has come to facing any kind of criminal liability. I don't just mean this case. I mean, across the board, he's facing an investigation, as you know, in Georgia. There are uh, two Justice Department investigations. There's this this blitz of civil litigation. There's the Letitia James uh, fraud lawsuit that he's facing, the attorney general in New York. This that one's not criminal, but it could still really grind him down. This is the, the worst sort of spate of legal problems that he has faced in a very, very long time. And, and he's not happy about it. Now, remember, he tends to look at things strictly through the lens of either how much money he's paying or whether anyone is facing criminal charges. And right now, those are two very real threats to him. So he is not happy. He's focused on the presidential campaign much more pleasing to him, but that has its own potential hurdles because his support is not where it was. Yeah, and he and that attorney just got that massive uh, filing by that massive yes. fee that they have to pay as well. That's something that has bothered him, I'm told. Maggie Haberman, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. All right, show me your plan. Those are President Biden's words. That's his message, he says, for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. They are going to have their first face-to-face -face since McCarthy became Speaker tomorrow at the White House to talk about raising the national debt limit to avoid a potentially crippling default. The White House says it is refusing to negotiate and is skeptical of Mark Carthy's position. He says cuts to Medicare and Social Security are off the table. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill with more. Lauren, you know, this meeting is going to happen tomorrow. It's shaping up to be pretty tense based on what Biden has said going into this meeting and based on what McCarthy has said going into this meeting. Yeah, I mean, this meeting right now is all about posturing for the next several months. That's how long negotiators will have to come up with some plan to increase the debt ceiling. The White House has made it clear that tomorrow Biden intends to simply ask Kevin McCarthy, will he increase the debt ceiling as leaders have done in the past and as was done three times under former President Donald Trump? Trump. Meanwhile, Kevin McCarthy is going into this negotiation struggling really to have a plan coalesced between Republican members of his own conference. One of the challenges for Kevin McCarthy, and the White House is well aware of this, is the fact that any cuts to domestic spending, any cuts to the military are going to be hard to get agreement on within the Republican conference. And that is going to be the challenge for McCarthy, not just tomorrow, but going forward. And that is part of the reason you are hearing from Biden, show me your plan and I'll show you mine, because there is a feeling that Republicans may not be able to coalesce around one spending plan. And that is going to be really the challenge going forward for McCarthy. Yeah, many challenges going forward. Where are those cuts going to come from? Lauren Fox, thank you so much. President Biden is planning to end the COVID-19 emergency declaration on May 11th. This major shift uh, in response to a pair of Republican measures before the House to end COVID national and public health emergency. CNN's MJ Lee joins us now live from the White House. Good morning, MJ. So why is Biden ending this now? Well, Don, it certainly tells us that the government believes that we are entering a new phase of the pandemic. Remember, this public health emergency has been in place since January of 2020. So this is going to be a huge turning point, both for this White House and the country. Uh, and there are going to be some serious practical implications, too. You know, a lot of people across the country have been able to get things like uh, free tests, free vaccinations, free treatments as a result of this. So uh, all of the, those things are not necessarily going to be guaranteed.
uh, once this goes away. And that's also why the administration wanted to make sure that there were a couple of months of a transition period so people can really uh, prepare for this to go away. Now, there were also some politics at play for sure, too. Uh, we are told that House Republicans, because they were planning on voting to get rid of the public health emergency this week, House Democrats wanted to make sure that they weren't going to vote against that without first understanding what exactly the White House's plan was. And they felt like it was important that the White House weigh in. So you have some brand new reporting, as I understand, on the current president is going to focus on GOP extremism as he nears an announcement to run in 2024. What are the implications here? Well, Don, basically, if you take a look at President Biden's travels, his speeches, his events over the last few weeks, you get a pretty clear roadmap of not only his State of the, State of the Union speech uh, coming up next week, but also for his 2024 uh, reelect pitch. You know, uh, you look at how his schedule has been crafted and White House officials will say there are several things that they really want him to do. Uh, tout the economic progress from the last two years, for example. That's something that has been really important to him, uh, really focusing on the implementation of the legislation passed over the last two years. And a big, big part of this is also just the political messaging and trying to paint House Republicans as extremists and lawmakers who are going to undo some of that economic progress. So uh, expect to see more of that coming from the president, particularly as we head into next week and that big speech Tuesday night. MJ Lee, thank you. All right. Did Alex Murdoch confess to murdering his son as he was sobbing to investigators or was it just a misunderstanding? Coming up, we're going to let you listen to the audio yourself that played in court yesterday. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Day seven of the Alec Murdoch double murder trial set to begin in about an hour. Murdoch is accused of killing his wife and his youngest son in June of 2021 at their low country, South Carolina hunting estate. On Monday, Murdoch's defense floated a theory that maybe there were two shooters while prosecutors played an interview that took place just days after the killings. In the recording, you hear Murdoch break down while telling investigators about his son. Watch this. This is so bad, I did it so bad. You asked the defendant about the traumatic picture that he saw of Paul and Maggie. What did he say? It's just so bad. I did him so bad. I did him so bad. Yes, sir. He's <laughs> such a good boy, too. <laughs> Joining us now to talk about this, all these developments, is criminal defense attorney Molly Palmer. Molly, great to have you. Good morning. For our viewers, people who may be listening in the car on their way to work and they couldn't see what we just played, that was Murdoch during the trial mouthing, that's not what I said. This happened at the end of the day before defense counsel could cross. You're a criminal defense attorney. How would you cross-examine this witness? Well, we know that we have this special agent, Paul Croft, on the stand. He's with the state's law enforcement division. So we know he testifies a lot, right? We know that he's been prepared by the state, by the prosecution for his testimony. And we know that after yesterday, when we saw Alec Murdoch mouth to his lawyers, I didn't say that, that certainly they conferenced about what they are going to do in this cross-examination. They're going to pin him in and ask questions very short one uh, one fact per question 
Russian cross-examination where they're going to get him to say that perhaps Alec Murdoch said something else. Now, are they going to say that what he said was they did him so bad? That hmm. seems to be one theory out there or something else entirely. We'll have to see. So let's uh, play uh, this theory that uh, the lead defense counsel, Dick Harputlian, is floating now that maybe there were two shooters. He asked uh, the forensic analyst, Melinda Worley, about the collection of evidence. And then he goes and he introduces this theory. Let's play that question to her. Here it was. But one explanation of this data would be two shooters. One explanation, not the, but one. They went around a little bit on that, but then eventually she said that is a, quote, reasonable explanation. Do you think defense counsel made inroads that way? I do. I, I think that this case has been so interesting because throughout the defense attorneys have kind of weaved their theme of, look, there were multiple shooters. But I think what's always tricky here is that you have to explain to a jury that the defense has no obligation to put on an alternative theory. They just have to show that there's reasonable doubt. And so the prosecution has their theory. And we see Dick Harpootlian mm -hmm. asking these questions about the two-shooter theory. Is that enough to convince the jury that there's doubt here? Right. Or is the jury expecting something more cohesive and complete from the defense? Let's, let's finally talk about the guns because prosecution entered into evidence uh, a 300 blackout rifle and a 12-gauge shotgun. We also saw body camera footage inside the Murdoch home in terms of the guns. And then we also saw footage of investigators picking up bullet casings from outside. What's key here is that they are saying there are key pieces of evidence, but what prosecution is not saying is that this was or these were the murder weapons. So why, why put them into evidence this way now? Well, you know, they put them into evidence, but that wasn't without the defense attorneys standing up and objecting. Now, the judge ultimately allowed them in, mm -hmm. but they were very careful not to say that these are the murder weapons. I think the prosecution is trying to create this feeling that with all these guns, there is the likelihood that Alec Murdoch knew how to use a gun, knew how to be the shooter, and therefore he was. Molly, thank you. Molly Palmer, we appreciate it. We'll have you back soon. Thanks. Caitlin. Such a fascinating case happening there. Also today, dozens of migrants say they don't want to be moved from a New York City hotel to a new shelter at the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal. CNN is there live with a look at the conditions. We'll bring it to you next. This morning, some newly arrived migrants who have been housed temporarily at a Manhattan hotel are refusing a move to an emergency shelter in Brooklyn and have camped out in front of the hotel. The city says it was making room for families by moving some single men to a communal relief shelter. But those men say the conditions are subpar after this short cell phone video that you see here was shared among them. CNN's Polo Sandoval is live covering all of this near the Brooklyn cruise terminal. And Polo, I know some of the migrants were camped outside the Watson refusing to move. What is the latest that you're seeing there this morning? They told me yesterday, Caitlin, that anything is better than getting on a bus and being brought here to this part of Brooklyn that's fairly difficult to access. Uh, you know, this is as far as we can actually take you because of the restrictive access. But there are a few messages, uh, welcoming messages that have been posted by some nonprofits here. It is a very complicated situation that these uh, migrants are finding themselves in. But the city saying that really this is there's a simple uh, at least a simple reason why they're doing this. You see, they continue to receive a significant number number of women with children and families with children. The city saying that they are the ones who have to take priority when it comes to these 
private quarters, these hotels that the city has basically been renting for months now to provide some housing for these families. But look, the concerns that I'm hearing from these migrant men is that not only do they not feel safe in some of these barrack style living facilities, but at the end of the day, it's also extremely inconvenient for them. You see, they believe that the only shot that they have of any potential employment is in Manhattan. So relocating them out here to a cruise terminal that is not very easy to get to if you don't have reliable transportation, that that places yet another hurdle in their way. So I heard from many, many migrants, including a 33-year-old man named Nerio, Nerio Gonzalez who traveled here from Venezuela with his cousin. He says he'd much rather stay in the city then come here. The numbers continue to rise though, Caitlin. 81 emergency shelters that have already been opened. Five of these so-called HERCs or these uh, emergency resource centers that are open. But the city's saying it's doing the best they can given the unprecedented number of people they continue to have to find housing for. Yeah, we'll see how this continues. Polo Sandoval, thank you. Well, NBA and NFL referees under fire over recent calls. Is there a bigger problem? Bomani Jones joins us next. We have a massive officiating issue. Yeah. I think refs suck. And I, not all refs, there are some refs that suck. And they shouldn't be in playoff games. Why are they in playoff games? Hey, that is former player Pat McAfee reacting to several controversial calls and non-calls that dominated the sports weekend. There were several issues in both NFL Conference Championship games on Sunday, prompting questions about the legitimacy of the league in the NBA. Los Angeles, Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron James was furious after the reps missed a foul on what could have been a game-winning shot at the end of Saturday night's game against the Boston Celtics. So let's discuss now Bomani Jones, a host of Game Theory with Bomani Jones, which is now streaming season two on HBO Max. He joins us. Bomani, thank you very much. Okay, so listen. Is this that we have more technology and people are used to the cameras and all of that? Or are people just more sensitive now to bad calls? What is it? Well, I think one is people do have more exposure to bad calls in the NBA. But on top of that, they have more opportunities to talk to each other about bad calls on social media. And then everybody gets charged up. And if there's anything that people love being on the Internet, it's a sleuth. And then all of a sudden, everybody gets to break this down and do their own slow motion at the house, and they could be the ones that ultimately get to the bottom of it. So I don't have any evidence that there are more bad calls. I know that the NBA is on top of every call and no call, and they run those officials through the ringer about those calls. But I definitely agree with the idea that we got a lot more time to talk he about. He forgot outrage. Sleuth and outrage. Sleuth and outrage. Yeah. Um, the Refs Association really went, like bent over backward to apologize, saying how wrong they got it. They said it is gut-wrenching. It will cause them sleepless nights. But some of the players are saying the ref should be fined when they screw up this badly. What do you think? Well, I think that players exist in a world of accountability that is unlike anything the rest of us deal with at our jobs. And they do feel like a mistake could get you traded, a mistake could get you cut. And they want everybody else associated with the operation to live under the same scrutiny that they do. So for the refs, the problem is everybody makes mistakes, but when they make mistakes, they affect far more people. So to say that they should be fined, I think, is a dangerous place to go in it. But I can't blame the players, given the lives that they live, that they expect everybody else to be held to the standard that they're held to.
Yeah. I'm like waiting on the referees to have like a classified document scandal because okay. it has been that insane. Like back to back, it was like the NBA was like, all right, hold my beer, NFL. We're going to show you what's going on. But that is the question is how do you fix this? Because, I mean, yes, people are upset about it, deeply upset. You saw LeBron James's faces face there. I mean, what is the solution for something like this? Well, I mean, the thing is, all people can do is work as hard as they can. Like, I don't know if there's an answer necessarily to fix this problem. Again, after every game, the NBA is going through with officials and looking at everything. Call, no call. If you made a call, should you have? If you didn't make a call, should you have made a call there? Like, they're doing a lot on that front, but it's but more important than over, ever then. that they make sure. But the game yeah, is but over. The game is over. They, That's all you can do. But they can't do. I mean, the NFL does it. They stop. They shut it down. They do an instant replay. They look at the. You know, the why can't, snap the ball. And yeah, but the M- yeah, but the NBA already does so much replay as it is, and it really greatly affects the flow of the game. Like their bigger concern is not the flow of the game. The question is whether or not this is a product that's going to withstand the scrutiny of legalized gambling. And that's the concern the NBA has more than anything else. And it's always a concern with basketball mm. because basketball of of all our major sports is the most susceptible to official interference when it comes to tweaking the results. That's the NBA's concern is to make sure that those lines and those betting houses are level. And they can't see everything. The refs can't catch everything. And they didn't. It used to be a time where, you know, people were okay. The ref didn't catch it. You'd have a fight about it, an argument, a beer, and then you'd grab another chicken wing and do your thing. (laughs) <laughs> you didn't get to go Grab on your chicken media. wing. You love chicken wings. But that's why the Lakers are so upset. Is it, this is like the fourth time it's happened to yeah. them, yeah. and they feel like it's costing them the game? Because it, it's and not this just, one, you, we're talking about, what, four points at the end of the game for this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, well, the Lakers are also somewhat specifically upset because it keeps happening to LeBron James, and they think yeah. that there's a level of respect he's supposed to get from officials that generally superstars get that at this point in his career he's not, which I think shocks a lot of people and shocks them. Talk about Super Bowl? For a sec? Yeah. What, what do you want I can to do about? that. All right. Well, the, We're going to the Lakers game tonight. We're talking about, well, oh, yeah, we are going to the Maybe they'll call me Lakers into Lakers game. We're going to be at a Lakers we game are. tonight. We can't wait. Sitting at MSG. Are we going to see you, sir? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, my bosses don't love me as much as they love y'all. <laughs> Those <are some> pricey <laughs> tickets right there. <laughs> it is our boss's ticket. <laughs> uh, no, actually, uh, we got them from Spike Lee. No, I'm kidding. We did not. <laughs> Maybe he'll be courtside. I wanted to talk about the significance of having two black quarterbacks. Do we have time to talk about the two? Quick. Two black quarterbacks. (laughs) We'll we'll make time. Go. This is huge. And I think that people lose sight of the occurrence of a black quarterback in a Super Bowl is still fairly rare. And the occurrence of a black starting quarterback is still not something that you can bet on. And what I love about this matchup is the contrast and the paths of these two guys where Mahomes is basically Michael Jordan in cleats. I say that over and over again. I'm not going to (laughs) stop. Jalen Hurts, what I find so good about his story is this wasn't a slam dunk situation. And at various points, the Eagles had an opportunity to say, no, I think we should go get somebody else. Hey, let's bring somebody else in. See if this guy can do it. Let's get somebody to push Jalen Hurts. And they believed in him. And he doesn't jump off the screen as a superstar like Mahomes or other guys. And normally for a black quarterback to get this far, you have to jump off the screen. Instead, Jalen Hurts exists as like a leader, a guy that people know, hey, that's the guy we're going to follow. He's going to manage this game while also being able to run like the modern quarterback does. So if the NFL wanted to try to point some progress out to somebody, this would be the chance for them to do it. Yeah. I'm going for the team uh, with a black quarterback, Bomani. <laughs> Thank you. But I'm pumped. That was corny. But anyway, it's true. Thank you. Hey, make sure uh, season two, you tune in. Season two of Game Theory with Mr. Bomani Jones now streaming on HBO Max. Again, our thanks to Bomani.
We do have some sad news to share with you this morning. Actress Cindy Williams, best known for the beloved sitcom Laverne and Shirley, has died. She was just 75 years old. Cheryl, I want you to meet Randy Carpenter. This is my best friend, Shirley Feeney. Hello. Enchanté. <laughs> I'd love to stay and chat, but I think I'll just mosey on into the bedroom and die. Ta-ta. <laughs> it was her quirky Shirley Feeney character on Happy Days and the spinoff that made her a household name in America. You said it. This is eternal, eternity, over and over and over again, on and on, without ceasing, without stopping, over and over, eternal, ad infinitum, infinity. This means till death do you part the end. Do you mean forever? Cindy Williams is survived by her two adult children. Meantime, Secretary sad. of State, very sad. So sad. Well, before we move on. So sure. 75 years old, and it's all they said young. is she died from a short illness. But um, it's nostalgic. It takes you back to a very warm time in the world, back to my childhood. So we're going to miss you, Cindy. And um, we lost Penny Marshall as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. The kind of TV that made you feel good. Right on. All right, Secretary of State Antony Blinken overseas for high-stakes meetings with Israelis and Palestinian leaders. Will he be able to cool tension at all, though, as this violence escalates? All right, earlier this hour, you saw Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting with the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. The trip coming at a time of increasing violence in the region, including seven dead after an attacker opened fire outside of a Jerusalem synagogue, and at least nine Palestinians dead after Israeli forces raided a West Bank refugee camp. For perspective on this, I want to bring in the former State Department Middle East negotiator, Aaron David Miller, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. No one better to talk to about this because we are waiting to hear any moment now from Secretary Blinken as he's going to hold a press conference. And Aaron, this is not the trip that he thought he was going to be getting when they planned this. And now he's going there. It's a time of such high tension. What are you expecting to hear from him? Uh, I think it's a really tough lift. And, and I think, Caitlin, that in order to analyze this correctly, you have to see the Blinken trip as part of a broader piece. In the last uh, month, uh, this new Israeli government, you've seen an administration engage more frequently, more intensely, and as a, at a, a senior level uh, with the new Israeli government, I, I think it's virtually unprecedented. No administration, Republican or Democrat, that I ever worked for engaged in this kind of diplomacy. And I think it reflects their concern, but it also reflects the reality that I think they want to take the prime minister at his word. He put together this government, which includes two extremist ministers. And I think by engaging him directly, they want to make it unmistakably clear that he is responsible for the actions of his government. But on the trip, it's going to be very difficult for Blinken to get steps by both sides to de-escalate, let alone guarantee that we, we could stabilize a very volatile situation between Israelis and Palestinians. And I wonder what you think all of this um, escalation and violence that has happened in the last month since Blinken planned his trip ties into what would be Netanyahu's sort of biggest goal in terms of furthering the Abraham Accords, normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia, because you tweeted recently, there's no pathway out of this cul-de-sac. They are in a strategic cul-de-sac, and I, I, I think that um, 
you know, you've got a perfect storm here. You've got a 56-year-old Israeli occupation. You have a Palestinian authority that's weakening, losing control. You've got armed groups tied to Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad that are still planning attacks, and you have the new government. But Netanyahu's key priority, Tip O'Neill was right, all politics are local. He put together this government in order to pass legislation so that he could somehow nullify, immunize himself from his ongoing trial. That's why he needs these two extremists, 64 seats in the Israeli Knesset. And they have leverage over him. He's not going to be able to block um, everything that they want to do in the West Bank and Jerusalem. So, yeah, it's going to affect the Abraham Accords as well. What do you think you're going to hear from Blinken next? What are you going to hear from him? He's going to talk about a two-state solution. He'll talk about the importance of Palestinian dignity and security and Palestinian rights. Uh, if he's lucky, um, I, I think this would probably be a stretch. Maybe he could get Mahmoud Abbas to recommit to uh, security cooperation with the Israelis, but I think that's going to be very difficult. It's a tough lift. It's a mission impossible. Yeah, it is a tough lift. And it really has not been the top of the priority list for the Biden administration. They've been dealing with China, with what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, Aaron David Miller, we're going to wait to hear from Secretary Blinken himself. But but thank you for that, that valuable insight. Take care, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Also this morning, as we were waiting on that, a family in Hawaii says they feel lucky to be alive after a giant boulder came crashing into their living room. Oh, I'll show you what happens after that next. So we always say, oh, you got to see this. This one you really do have to see. Okay, so there's this family in Hawaii. They're recovering now after a large boulder smashed into their Honolulu home this weekend, nearly crushed the owner. Okay, take a look. This is our morning moment. Wow, so members of the community say that these problems were triggered by a development next door excavating into a nearby mountain. They said after the new construction, they have experienced three boulders coming down the hill in the last 24 hours. The incident under investigation for now, that boulder, though, is still in the home. Oh, my God. I mean, just barely missed her. Wow. They're okay, luckily. Close call. Close call. Close call. All right, that's it for us. See you tomorrow, post Lakers. <laughs> we'll see if there's any bad to calls tonight. Yeah. yeah. Humble brags right here. We're going to the You're Lakers. You're going to. I don't know. I grew up not going <laughs> to NBA games, so I'm excited. I'm <laughs> Me too. We'll see you tomorrow. It'll be fun. Hey, we're going to see you tomorrow. Have a great day, everyone. CNN Newsroom starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.